Loving God, still now all within us might distract us, so that these words of sermon, as well as the words of Scripture, may, by the power of your Holy Spirit, become your living word in our hearts. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, if you were all listening closely to Jerry, you now know the date of Epiphany. What is the date of Epiphany? January 6th. What is today? So it ain't Epiphany. But it's one of those things, because you Methodists are like we Presbyterians. We're not going to come out on Wednesday night for a special Epiphany service. <laughs> so we always take it as one of those movable feast uh, liturgical festivals that you can pull into the closest Sunday. So this is Epiphany Sunday. That's why, that's the listing. If you look at the top of your bulletin this morning, that's the listing in your bulletin. And when Kelly and I were talking about my coming and preaching so that she could be away this Sunday, she said, well, you've got the option. You can preach the second Sunday of Christmas text. That's the liturgical date for today. Or you can go ahead and preach the Epiphany text. She said, but if you don't preach the Epiphany text, we never get to sing We Three Kings. <laughs> and I said, that's fine, because I think a story about wise people coming from Iran from one of the most troubled places in the world, from the same direction where now millions of Syrian refugees come toward the West. I think it's important for us to think about texts that invite us to receive the gifts that these wise folks have to offer. So today, it's Epiphany Sunday. Now, because we don't, we probably wouldn't have known, many of you, the date of Epiphany unless Jerry had said it. Uh, Epiphany has always sort of been the Avis festival for this time of year, the one that has to try harder. That, you know, Christmas is the Hertz, it's the number one. Um, but that hasn't always been the case. As a matter of fact, in the life of the early church, Epiphany was celebrated long before the particular date, December 25th on which we celebrate Christmas. And here's why. When the Roman Empire began to become more and more Christianized, the bishops thought about um, when to mark the celebration, the exact date of the birth of Christ, because Luke didn't write it down, Matthew didn't write it down, there was no birth certificate telling us what the date was. And one of the things they considered, there were two things they considered. One was, when is it nine months after the Feast of the Annunciation, which was on March 25th? So that gets you to December 25th. The other thing was, in the Roman Empire, they had this great celebration, starting in about the, the second, third century, of uh, the celebration of the Invincible Sun. It was a pagan celebration. It was recognizing that time, they weren't quite sure when the, the, the winter solstice was, but marking that time when the sun, which seemed to be going away, getting dimmer and dimmer and the daylight getting shorter and shorter, when that turned around and the light began to grow again. So they would celebrate the return of the sun. And the bishop said, we want to celebrate the light of the world that created that sun. We want all of our Christians to know that the celebration of the nativity of Jesus is far more important than whatever pagan celebration their grandparents may have held every year. So that's why Epiphany was the second most important 
Christian holiday after Easter for many decades, a couple of centuries, until Christmas began to be emphasized more and more. Now, this isn't just something that happened back then. It continues to be uh, true that wherever Christianity has moved around the world, as missionaries have taken the faith around the globe, there has always been the issue of how do we make this story understandable in this cultural context? And what are those kind of celebrations and, and, and deep values of this particular people that we need to give Christian meaning and understanding to? That continues for the Roman Catholic Church a lot today, even in Africa especially, where they have to talk a lot about helping people understand the difference between venerating the saints of the Roman Catholic Church and their former practice of ancestor worship. Close, but a very different focus. Now, we in America, maybe it's sort of the tail end or sort of dealing with that sort of issue and uh, a, a different way, sort of the reverse way, because the thing that we have to sort of focus on together is to remember the importance of the celebration of the Incarnation in the midst of a culture that is celebrating new holidays like Black Friday and Cyber Monday and Small Business Saturday, where the commercial aspect has tended to gloss over the religious import. Or this year in particular, we have to sort of wonder, well, is there a new religion that's beginning to take over Christmas, that religion that was founded in a galaxy far, far away and long ago with the release of Episode 7 of Star Wars? Well, why, you might ask, was Epiphany the big deal originally before Christmas? Well, it was because by the time the church began to celebrate a special celebration of the, the childhood of Christ, it was by that time a largely Gentile community. Have to remember, for most of the characters in the New Testament, those were Jewish Christians who populate the gospel records and most of, excuse me, most of the epistles. But the Jewish Christian community sort of disappears from the stage of history about 70 AD, about the time of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Roman Empire, when a lot of those Jewish Christian leaders literally had to take to the hills. So this insight that Epiphany brought was that this faith was meant for magi as well as for shepherds. It was meant from people from the east Gentiles, as well as for the Jews. That's one of the biggest kind of Holy Spirit breakthroughs in the early church's life. You have to remember that neither Peter nor Paul, when they started their missionary work, thought that they were supposed to go to anyone other than the children of Israel, to Jewish synagogues in the diaspora. And so it's no surprise that an increasingly Gentile community would celebrate that innovation that led to the circle being drawn much, broad, much more broadly in a way that included them in the household of faith as well. Now, Epiphany began to fade in importance 
when that sort of radical newness of Gentiles being included in the Christian community began to fade away as all the known world, the Roman Empire became a Christian empire. And when you combine that with the practice of infant baptism, it didn't take long until people couldn't remember any time that any of their relatives were anything but Christians. A state of affairs which continued for a long, long time in the West of being a citizen in a nation state in Western Europe or its colonies like the Americas was the same thing at one and the same time. You were both a, a Christian and a citizen. That's a state of affairs that continued in our part of the world until maybe 50 or 60 years ago. Now, do I mean to say that there were no unchurched people in America in the 1950s? Of course not. Though it would have been a lot harder to find one of them. Now it's probably harder for us when we go out in public to find someone else who is also Christian. Things have sort of been turned on their heads. When I was a pastor in Nashville, Rose was just talking about that, and so in the late 90s, early 2000s, I could go to a party. I could go to a cocktail party. And, you, you know, you're doing the small chit-chat in groups of three or four people. The second or third question inevitably you got asked was, where do you go to church? Matter of fact, I was in a conversation one night where somebody was having that conversation and turned to the person to my left and said, well, where do you go to church? And that person said, well, actually, I'm Jewish. And he said, well, what Jewish church do you go to? <laughs> Well, that was a common question in the South as late as the turn of the century. It's not a question I've been asked. I don't know if I can remember if I have ever been asked that during my ministry in Northern California. We're aware that we are a lot more marginalized, that we are a lot less enculturated as the church on the West Coast than in some other parts of the country, and especially still in the southeast. So we're, we're used to people sort of moving all over the Christian map. We're used to Methodists becoming Presbyterians or vice versa, or Episcopalians becoming Lutherans or Roman Catholics, or Church of Christ or Southern Baptist people finding their ways into more mainline congregations. But not only that, we're also aware that increasingly so, probably for most of the time we've been a part of a church here on the West Coast, that there are lots of people who come into our sanctuary doors who don't understand anything about the Christian faith, who aren't even really sure what it is we're doing when we all gather in a room like this at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Is this a lecture? Is this a concert? I mean, what other cultural referent would you have that would help you understand what it is we're doing here this morning. Not only are there people coming in who don't know anything about the Christian church, but there are also people who are coming in who have been burned by the church. Especially people coming out of more authoritarian Christian traditions who are holding on to that slight hope that there may be a way to talk about their experience of Jesus that doesn't lay the guilt trip on them that they've always thought was a part of the faith. 
Matter of fact, the two most rapidly growing demographic segments, sectors, and when you do uh, religious affiliation surveys now, uh, Pew Institute and Hartford Institute uh, both show this, the fastest growing categories are two. Nuns, or what we sometimes will call spiritual but not religious, which means I've got that feeling in my heart, but I don't want to have anything to do with an organized Christian community. And the duns, the people who said, I tried to hang in there, but I don't see what this is, I don't see the value add here. I'm not sure what this is doing for me, and they just kind of fade out the back door. But whatever people's relationship to the traditional church, which is usually suspicious, if not resistant, those folks still are asking themselves all the big questions of human existence. Who am I? To whom, to what relationship should I give myself? What am I called to do? How do I make a difference in the world? Is there some project bigger than me and my small circle of family and friends that I ought to give my time and energy, my love, my resources to? People continue to hunger after that depth dimension of life, whether or not they know what to call it. So they come into our sanctuaries with unformed longings in their hearts, hoping that what we do at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, whatever this thing is, that it will give them a sense of the mystery that lies at the heart of human existence. That mystery that we know to call God. Carl Jung, the great psychologist, had a sign over the entry door into his house that said, bidden or unbidden, God is here. Bidden or unbidden, God is here. Well, we might say that some of these seekers, some of the nuns, some of the dons, some of the spiritual but not religious have a sign over their heart saying, we may not know it, but like the Magi, we're also looking for the Christ child. Like those magi, they seek the Holy One even if they don't know it. After all, the magi, as they were making their journey, all they knew was they were looking for that one who had been born King of the Jews. That's the only question they knew to ask. As a matter of fact, if they had understood what kind of uproar it was going to cause to go to Herod's palace to ask that question, they might have stopped at a Starbucks along the way to ask for directions instead. And they certainly couldn't have imagined, given that framing, what kind of rule, what kind of reign this sovereign was going to have. Herod certainly thought, thought it was going to be one like his. That's why he needed to go and stamp it out and find that person and kill him before he could be a threat to the throne. But neither, the Herod, neither Herod nor the Magi could have imagined that the form that Jesus' rule would take would be a self-emptying one. A form that that early Christian hymn that we read this morning from the book of Philippians celebrates. 
hear these as poetry, as lyrics to a song. Though he was in the form of God, Christ did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and by the way he interacted with and formed his disciples, he in essence turned to them and said, now you are the light of the world. I've come to shine into your lives so that you may take that life out, light out into the world and shine it into others. So just as we celebrate this morning that light of the world revealed to the Gentiles, to those magi on that first epiphany, so we are called by the spirits to be reflections of that light, to take it in, but not to hoard it, to share it. Not so much by what we say, or even by our efforts to keep the numbers and the finances up in our own congregation but in the way we reflect that light as we live it out in the broader community into which Christ calls us. How we sacrifice self, humble self, for the sake of justice and to build cultural clout that can be used to fight for equality for the marginalized. One thing you can count on in this new year is that you'll have people that you don't already know who will walk into the doors of this sanctuary throughout the year. There'll be some spiritual but not religious. There'll be some nuns. There'll be some duns. Coming into these doors to see if Christ's body, the church, is in fact alive and offering the grace and healing that Christ himself offers from this spot on Anderson Road. Some will be magi, wise women, wise men, well-versed in the practice of Christian living, ready and willing to share their gifts with you and to help you become a more vital and faithful witness to God's realm in the world. Some will be rude shepherds, hungering in their hearts for acceptance and hope, but with little or no understanding about the Christian faith and its practices, but desperately hoping that that meaning can be found here. And a lot of people like us, possessing just enough faith to be dangerous, having, having given our lives to Jesus just enough to be inoculated against the possibility that we might actually change the way we live and the people we serve. It was recorded that the great Lutheran reformer Martin Luther, the last words he spoke on his deathbed were, we are beggars. It's true. All of us come to Christ as beggars, hungry for the bread of life, thirsting for the cup of salvation, hoping that we might catch a glimpse of the wholeness of life that we have not been able to create for ourselves on our own, 
and to open ourselves to the grace of Christ, which alone can put us in touch with that meaning. We all come here looking for the Christ child. Here's the good news of Epiphany. He's here. He's always been here. He'll always be here. Thanks be to God. Amen.